Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about the history of Britain's trade policy. Over time, Britain has been free trading, it's been protectionist, it's had to choose between European integration and and trade arrangements with countries like New Zealand, Australia and Canada. Many of those decisions have parallels with today. And we're going to be joined by a very special guest. My name is Kevin O'Rourke. I'm a professor of economics at NYU Abu Dhabi. So this story starts in 1815. The Europeans had been fighting the Napoleonic Wars. Um, In general, war disrupts trade and low imports support high food prices. So think war, think higher food prices. So even without any tariffs, British food prices are high. Okay, but that's what's been going on in 1815, the wars end. And so we get the Corn Laws. The Corn Laws were a system of legislation protecting the grain sector in Britain. Uh, And it's no surprise that they had the Corn Laws because the big landowners of the time were the political power in the country. The aristocrats who who dominated the lords, but also the commons, uh, largely derived their incomes from from renting out land to farmers, and farmers obviously wanted high food prices. And they went through several iterations. Uh, So early on, there was a a price at which British ports would simply be closed to grain. So if prices went down below a certain point, you just blocked all imports. That was eventually replaced with a, a sliding scale tariff. So when prices were lower, the tariff would be higher. So the effect of that was not only to raise the average price of grain, but also to, uh, I suppose, smooth out fluctuations in the price of grain, which was also quite neat if you're a landowner. So the political economy of this seems pretty obvious. The people in power benefited from high grain prices. Imported grain meant prices were going to fall, and they didn't like that. But you also had some strong opposition groups. A guy called Richard Cobden helped set up the Anti-Corn Law League, a movement that helped to set up The Economist. Way. We asked Kevin about this opposition. The Corn Laws were uh, opposed by urban interests above all and by, by, by liberals who were their political representatives. And manufacturers didn't like the Corn Laws because they pushed up the price of food and the price of food they thought and this is what economists thought at the time, the price of food was related to the price of labour. Uh, so if you had more expensive food, then you had more expensive workers, and that was bad for profits. Um, and of course, there was also the hope that if Britain cut its own tariffs, then maybe that could stimulate other countries to lower their tariffs, and that would be good for British manufacturers who were at this stage beginning to uh, export their output. Economists, theoretical economists, of course, also uh, believed that the Corn Laws were a bad thing, and they very much took the line that it, it, it worked through food prices and, um, and the nominal wage. So in those days, many classical economists were Malthusians. That meant that they believed that the wage was set in the long run at a subsistence level. Demography would act to ensure that uh, working class people basically got to uh, live at, a, at a, 
admittedly socially determined, but but rather basic wage nonetheless. And so if you had cheaper food, then you would have cheaper wages, then profits would increase, and then growth would increase, because these classical economists also believed that growth was uh, fueled above all by capital accumulation. And so you needed profits to finance savings that would then fuel investment and lead to growth. So those were the theoretical arguments. There were also political arguments. Richard Cobden took the view that has been common many times since, that if you had free trade, you would have better relationships between countries. That's perhaps not a surprising viewpoint, given that the entire world was emerging from a mercantilist era where protection and warfare very much went hand in hand. They were part of a package deal. Uh, So Britain at this stage is emerging from that mercantilist period. It's getting rid of its uh, trading monopolies and so on. It's, it's, It's won the world war that ended in 1815. And so maybe they can build a better world run by the British. So there are a lot of arguments in favour of abolishing the Corn Laws. So this is really interesting. Often in today's debates, we think about um, lowering trade restrictions as being for the benefit of consumers. They can get cheaper stuff and that's good for them. But back then, that was not the argument. The argument wasn't that cheaper food would benefit workers. The argument um, in favour of of removing these trade restrictions is that they would actually benefit the owners of capital. Cheaper food meant that wages would fall and that would leave higher profits for the, the manufacturers and they could use those profits to invest and fuel growth. So, spoiler alert, after the, the tariffs were gradually reduced, including in 1842, in 1846, the Corn Laws did get repealed. And basically, it was because the, the prime minister at the time, a guy named Robert Peel, decided that this was a good idea. But he didn't decide it was a good idea because he thought the economists were right. He didn't think that cheaper food would lead to lower wages and higher profits that could be invested so that, so that the economy would grow. He thought the economists had it wrong and that actually cheaper food would benefit the poor. He thought the trade restrictions were a tax on the poor. And so Peel... Uh, being an empirical sort of a fellow, being English and not a sort of some sort of French theorist or anything, noticed that when the Corn Law duties were uh, reduced in 1842, wages did not fall. And he took this as a refutation of the Malthusian theory because, in principle, the price of food fell and therefore the wages should have fallen also. Now, I think this tells you that, that, that Peel really was a British empiricist rather than a theorist. Because if you think about the Malthusian mechanism that leads to wages being equal to subsistence wages, it's based on the fact that if you give the workers cheaper food and they get better off, they have a lot more babies who 20 years later flood the labour market. And so you wouldn't actually have expected to see uh, wages falling two or three years after food prices fell. But anyway, that's a, a theoretical subtlety that escaped Peel. He became convinced that these corn laws were actually a tax on the poor. And so he felt duty-bound to try to do something about that. So it wasn't actually just Peel changing his mind. Peel also needed to get 
this through Parliament. And basically, the the political economy of Britain is changing a bit. So Britain is is urbanizing, people are moving to the cities. And also corn is becoming less important to landowners, their their portfolios are diversifying. Um, And so essentially, the interests in favor of the corn laws aren't as strong. You also have these these very intensive efforts of the Anti-Corn Law League. Um, they're trying to challenge the, the protectionist MPs. Uh, and then you have the House of Lords, and obviously that they're full of um, landowners. And there the repeal gets through by persuading um, the leader that, you know, bl- blocking it would really threaten the long-run position of, of, of the Lords. And so they essentially back down and say, "Mm, okay, fine. Okay, so it does get through. It's a mix of lobbying, changing politics, and Robert Peel thinking that economists were wrong. That means the corn laws are repealed. So after the corn laws are are repealed, uh, and there's some debate about this, but basically Britain becomes a more or less unilateral free trader. Okay, so this period is really, you know, um, this period of nostalgia for free trading Britain um, that you hear a bunch about from from Brexiteers. And and here by free trading, we mean that essentially Britain pretty much offers low tariffs to everyone and, and, and for free almost. So not in exchange for them handing out trade concessions. Now, I should say at this point that obviously Britain doesn't run a kind of benevolent foreign policy. Uh, lots and lots of blemishes on that record. Um, you know, just see the opium wars, for example. But its trade policy does become, you know, partly ideological um, in favor of open trade. And this position lasts for a pretty long time, basically until the Great Depression in the 1930s. Now, there are some hiccups, um, some some moments along the way. Here's Kevin. There are bumps on the road. Britain loses its prominence in the world economy. The Germans are catching up. The Americans are catching up. There's a feeling that uh, British economic dominance is under threat. There are periodic attempts to get protection back on the agenda. There are periodic attempts to, for example, use British tariffs, not so much to protect, but to induce other people Uh, who are unfairly protecting themselves against the Brits uh, to lower their own tariffs. Those efforts don't come, they don't uh, come to anything. They don't, they they don't end up working out. The the leading protectionist before World War I is Joseph Chamberlain. He is very keen on the idea that this newly diminished Britain will regain its standing by forming some sort of a deeper union with especially the white settler colonies, the Canadas, the Australias, the South Africas, the New Zealands. Chamberlain proposed raising Britain's general tariffs on imports so that the government could then lower those tariffs for Britain's allies. And the allies would then benefit from preferential access into the British market. Okay, so this idea in favor of a swing towards protectionism didn't go that well politically. Uh, there was essentially an election fought in 1906 in which it was a it was a fairly central issue, and Chamberlain's Conservative Party lost. So you have these protectionist swells, but but none really took hold. You have some more hiccups. There's World War One, as we said, wars are not good for free flows of commerce. Um, but but basically, still up until the 1930s, Kevin says that Britain is surprisingly liberal. 
But then you get the 1930s. And if you remember way back to our episode with Doug Irwin, I think this was episode number 31, you had the United States imposing the Smoot-Hawley tariff and other countries responding. There's just massive problems with the basic functioning of the global economy at this point. The way money is flowing around the world just isn't working. But with trade especially, things are definitely changing. Everyone seems to be moving away from free trade, and this includes Britain. So essentially, the conservatives are in control of the economy in the autumn of 1931. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer is one Neville Chamberlain, whom we remember as the chap with the bit of paper on the way home from Munich. But for the purposes of this story, he's above all Joseph Chamberlain's son. And the son is now going to work to implement the vision of his father. Everybody's moving in a protectionist direction at this time. The Americans have already gone that direction. Other countries are going that direction also. So Neville Chamberlain, it's not surprising that he starts to erect tariff barriers, but he does so in a Chamberlainian way. He erects tariff barriers much more heavily on foreign countries than on what they would have called in those days British countries. In other words, members of the uh, British Empire. And so you get protection, but you get protection allied with imperial preference, as it's known. So Britain here has retreated from its previously semi-ideological stance of of open trade. Um, we have Neville Chamberlain, who who carries out this policy proposal of his father, Joseph Chamberlain, the one that lost that election in 1906. So Britain raises tariffs overall and gives lower tariffs to its friends in, in New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and 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 so on through through imperial preference. And it's been described as as building a wall so that you can knock holes through it. But but essentially the effect is that that others start doing the same thing, right? And so and so essentially the world gets carved up into these competing trade blocks where you have special access to each other, but then a wall um, against the rest of the world. So the Japanese have a block, the Germans have another block. The US isn't in a block and they're not very happy um, about being being shut out of all of these these arrangements. But uh, let's let's continue this whistle stop tour of 20th century history. Um, the blocks go to war, the, the Second World War. And when that's all done, in, in 1947, we then get the the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And that's where lots of countries came together and, and said, okay. Let's try, for the most part, not to do this blocks thing. Let's do non-discriminatory treatment of, of tariffs, applying the same relatively low tariffs toward, toward each other. But despite this, Britain does end up getting to keep some of its imperial preferences. So the post-war period is a difficult one for Britain to navigate its way through. Uh, it's come through the war largely with the help of its, of its allies in, in what's now the British Commonwealth, and imperial preferences are still a core component of British economic policy. And it's important that we remember this. I mean, I mean, people who are nostalgic for Victorian free trade tend to identify Britain as, a, as, a, as an instinctive free trader. But actually, the imperial preference phase of British trade policy lasts for a long time. And it's still alive and kicking in the 1940s and the 1950s. And this is going to be very difficult for Britain when the Europeans decide that they're going to embark on their own discriminatory uh, trade liberalisation. And that's what, of course, leads to the, uh, 
the formation of the European Economic Community. So at this point, at the end of the 1940s, Britain's basically having its cake and eating it. It gets to essentially be part of the general agreement on tariffs and trade, this bigger trading arrangement. But it also gets to keep some of its imperial preferences with what's now known as the, the Commonwealth. But when the Europeans decide that they want to integrate, the choices that Britain faces are made harder. So let's talk about this European integration. The French and Germans essentially decide they want to get closer economically. One source of historical conflict between the two countries has been over who owns what of the iron ore and coal resources that are in the Ruhr and and Alsace regions of the two countries. And they basically want to stop the the, the fighting, the conflict over that iron ore and, and coal from happening in the future. And to do that, they decide to form the European Coal and Steel Community. Essentially, the hope is that by joining forces, heavy industry will get some economies of scale that will be good for them, help them compete. And then there's also a political rationale. Maybe this this dipping the toe in the water of, of some kind of economic union will set the stage for deeper political integration down the road. The timing of this was hopeless from the point of view of Britain getting involved in Europe because in Britain, the Labour Party had recently been elected to power uh, with an agenda of nationalising heavy industry. The people who were behind the coal and steel community were all European Christian Democrats. And so from an ideological standpoint, left-wing Labour people were not particularly interested in in having uh, British coal and steel subject to uh, market-oriented continental diktat, which may seem upside down, but that's the way that it was back then. To that there was added the the British mistrust of any institution building that might be supranational. So Britain wanted to have uh, veto power over anything that any sort of uh, multinational organisation would want to do. The the Continentals, on the other hand, were clearly looking to build uh, some sort of a supranational organisation that wouldn't just create a common market for coal and steel, but that would get involved in such non-economic matters as, as worker welfare and so on. And this was just too much for for the British. So Britain didn't end up joining this European coal and steel community, but that didn't stop the trend of European integration. In 1957, a group of countries formed the European Economic Community, or the EEC, and that would eventually become, later down the line, the European Union. But to start, Britain was on the outside of this looking in. As time went on, it, it wasn't just, you know, Britain and, and, and Labour-led politics um, that meant that Britain struggled with this idea of European integration. Uh, fundamentally, if Britain was going to integrate with its neighbours, that meant dropping trade barriers with Europe and also reducing the preferences on offer to the Commonwealth countries. That was politically difficult. Another related problem was the the tension between European policies towards agriculture, which essentially kept prices high by shutting out imports, and the British policy of importing cheap food from the likes of Australia, New Zealand and Canada. So after World War II, um, all European economies have policies designed to help farmers. Uh, This is partly because they all want to be self-sufficient in food which seems like a good idea after a total war. But it's also for political reasons, because because angry farmers had voted for fascists in many countries. So everywhere you have 
policies to supplement farmers' incomes. Now, the, the, the conditions are very different in Britain and on the continent. In Britain, you have two factors that make it different than the continent. Firstly, you have imperial preference. That means that you don't have tariffs, or at least not very high tariffs, on goods coming in from Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And what are these countries exporting to Britain? And the answer is largely food. And so it's going to be difficult to keep food prices high at the border because your big food suppliers are basically uh, enjoying uh, preferential access to your market. There's a second uh, way in which... um, Britain is different. And that's that agriculture in Britain is a small share of the total economy. It's been a very small share, actually, going way back into the 19th century, because Britain is the first industrial nation. And that gives the British an opportunity, because it means that you can actually afford to subsidise farmers directly out of the public purse. In the continent, you have economies like Italy, where farming is still an overwhelmingly important sector, hugely important sector, both in terms of output and in terms of employment. There was never any way that continental countries could have afforded to directly subsidise their farmers from the public purse. The states could not have afforded that. The only way to do it was to raise the market price and to do so at the border via tariffs. So the British found it very, very difficult to contemplate joining the EEC. That would have required their replacing their deficiency payment system with a system of subsidising farmers through higher tariffs. That would have not only shut out Canadian, Australian and New Zealand producers of food, which was a problem anyway, it also would have led to higher food prices. And low food prices in Britain had a totemic value. And they'd had that totemic value ever since Robert Peel decided that it really wasn't a good idea to put up the price of the workers' loaf of bread. So the Europeans are integrating, and it's not completely straightforward for, for Britain to join in. But pretty soon after the EEC happens in, in 1957, Britain decides that it doesn't want to be left out of the party anymore. It does want to join in. Here's Kevin explaining why. There are lots of reasons why the British eventually decided that it would be a good idea to join the EEC after all. Some of them are geopolitical. The special relationship with America was never going to work as effectively if if Britain wasn't a member of the EEC. I mean, Britain wasn't as interesting for the Americans if it wasn't in the EEC. But economically, uh, I think the key point is that Britain was a pretty protectionist economy uh, in the 1950s. uh, And it had been so since the 1930s. Everybody else had also adopted protection in the 30s, but the continental Europeans are already liberalising. They're developing this this large common market and they're becoming much more efficient. And German industry is once again becoming much more efficient relative to the British. So what you have in Britain is you have a protected economy and you have an uncompetitive economy. You have an economy with a lot of monopoly power. Uh, You have an economy with a lot of ex-inefficiency. Uh, And so eventually, more and more policymakers become convinced that the only way uh, to stop Britain becoming the, you know, being the sick man of Europe, the only way to boost British growth rates, which had been anemic in a comparative perspective during this period, is to expose British industry to the force of continental competition. You know, the hope is that that will actually give British industry a a boost and, and, and boost uh, British growth overall, uh, and and so they decide that uh, the way to do this is to eventually join the join the common market. But Britain isn't immediately let in. 
Its applications were rejected by the, the French president, Charles de Gaulle, in 1963 and 1967, and, and for a number of reasons that, that scholars are still fighting about. Partially, the, the French could have been worried that the UK might have been a, a, a sort of Trojan horse for American interests o- over the continent. They're probably also a bit worried about the UK derailing their, their plans for integration, including for the common agricultural policy that was being developed during this time period. And so it's not until 1973 that Britain does finally join the common market. And from that point on, its trade policy toward other European member countries becomes integrate, integrate, integrate. And its policy toward the countries in the Commonwealth becomes, yeah, you're not so special anymore. Okay, so Britain joins in 1973, and in 2016, we have Brexit. Now, some might say that the vote was based on a considered re-evaluation of the costs and benefits of integrating with Europe. Um, you know, there were all these tricky choices in the past. Um, maybe we just decided that, that we needed to make a different decision now. Or one might say it was based on the corrosive impact of bad domestic policies combined with xenophobia, lies and misinformation, and a completely distorted vision of economic opportunities outside the EU. Some might say. <laughs> Smea, how do you really feel about that? Okay, before finishing, we wanted to ask Kevin what he thought history told us about the choices that Britain faces now. The most fascinating choice, if you're an economic historian, is what are they going to do about agriculture? Because that's the choice that has the most resonances. Um, If you're thinking as a pure economist, and if you're thinking about easy economic gains from Brexit, I guess the most plausible one is that they might end up importing cheaper food. And that would be a very British uh, thing to do. It would bring them back to their traditional cheap food policy that was instituted in 1846 and actually survived the protection of the 1930s to a, a very large extent. So a recent piece of mine in The Economist basically asked this question, um, you know, is Britain going to use its newfound sovereignty under Brexit to do loads of deals, um, you know, maybe with Australia and New Zealand, um, revive its old imperial preferences and, and therefore allow in lots of cheap food? Now, obviously, Britain is also negotiating a trade deal with the US and newsflash, it is not very popular. Politically, the British public don't seem to be particularly thrilled by the idea of of letting um, a lot of American food in. I can just imagine the American listeners asking me why I hate science, but but the fact is that that it's going to be difficult to avoid headlines of you know chlorinated chicken, hormone treated beef, and while that's the case, the British public is is not going to be excited about it. And so in summary, politics does seem to have moved on a little bit since the 1840s. And on that note, I think we are done. I hope you enjoyed this this, um, fairly rapid journey through British trade policy history. A huge thank you to Kevin O'Rourke at NYU Abu Dhabi. Do check out his book, A Short History of Brexit. It actually includes a lot of non-Brexit stuff in there, and it's a fascinating read. We should also acknowledge the work of Cheryl Shonhart Bailey, who's done some amazing research on the history of the corn laws that we and Kevin were citing. We'll be sure to post links to all of this research to the episode page of our website. That is www.tradetalkspodcast.com. Thanks also to Colin Warren at Audio Guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. 
That's not one but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. I should have recorded a Brexit song. <laughs> <laughs>